0: Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time of worship we've already had here this morning, for drawing these particular people into this place at this time. And we're certainly mindful of Trish and Rick, who are possibly tuning in from home. Um, We just thank you that you have appointed this meeting between yourself, your word, and our hearts. Ask that you would help us to pay close attention, that you would help me uh, to present this truth in such a way that um, we are encouraged and engaged. And um, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would so work in our minds and hearts that we're actually changed. We pray for this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 The last time we were together, We looked at verses 9 through 11, Um, and we took the long way around there, but basically there were just a couple of points. The first one was that the poor in a season of trial should um, fix their eyes and hearts on the glory and the riches that they have to look forward to in eternity, and then recognizing that those riches and that glory flows from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Glorify, therefore, him in the midst of trial. The rich should look at, more more, uh, pointedly, the humiliation that all sinners experience when they come to meet Jesus. There's a thing that happens in the course of gospel apprehension, where you catch a glimpse of what you really are. And it's the grace of God working in your heart that shows you what you really are. You're not wonderful. You're not an object that should be worshiped. You're not a person who should rule over all things. You're a sinner in desperate need of grace and mercy and salvation. So rich and poor alike have that experience. What James seems to be saying is if you're wealthy, it might help you to notice that experience even a little bit more than the impoverished person. Um, the contention, though, that I made is that trials, when we're in the midst of trials, and that's the whole framework of this first part of James 1, when we're in the midst of trials, th- th- they are neither diminished nor are they enhanced by the quantity or the quality of your worldly possessions. Um If trials are, as I've suggested that they are, a glimpse at death, then a trial should serve to remind us that the absence or the presence of a helicopter in your backyard that you own is not really going to stave off your end, right? Trials a glimpse at death, that's a reminder that you're going to die. It's a reminder that you are dependent how much you have, how many skyscrapers your name is on, isn't going to change your ultimate outcome, right? Um, in fact, <clears throat> uh, that just popped into my head, and I struggle with whether or not to share everything that pops into my head. But I- I'll share this, and I'll try to do it in a sensitive way. Um, I was never a Kobe Bryant fan. Um, I always thought he was a bit overrated. Overrated uh, as a as a as a who played? Uh, I've been corrected now that he's dead, and I've actually gone back and kind of studied him a little bit. He was fantastic. Uh, haven't seen a talent like that since Michael, Michael Jordan, and probably won't again. Sorry to all of you who are big, uh, um, what's his name? James, LeBron James fans. Guy's a hack. Um, <laughs> Kobe had a helicopter. So you could even argue that your riches might accelerate your end. The, the perspective there will help you hold all things loosely. Um, then the, on the other side, bemoaning your lack <clears throat> when you're poor in the midst of a trial doesn't decrease your comfort either. Every poor person that I've ever counseled with that wanted to sit there and conjure up hypotheticals about what they would do if they had thus and such resources was missing the point of the trial. And so are we when we're going through a trial and all we can think about is, if I only just had fill in the blank, then this would all be better. I will grant you that financial trials are greatly alleviated by, from a human perspective, an injection of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in financial trial, like if they're coming for the house because you can't make the mortgage and suddenly you come into enough money to pay off the house, that certainly alleviates the trial. In fact, I would say that signifies the end of the trial, (laughs) right? So, it can't be that we should just fix our minds on whatever it is that, if we just had it, would make this thing more bearable. It must be that God is trying to do something else. And if all that we've said about the purpose of trials being the strengthening and the enhancement of your faith is true, then figuring out what the end of the trial is going to be is not really our goal in the midst of trial. And as tempted as I am to rehearse my illustration from last week, Uh, We just don't have time. That sermon can be found on our website, Um, sbcne.org. Our second point was that when trials come, we need to have an eternal perspective. Part of the design of a trial is to make us realize or remind us, if we have already realized, that our ultimate hope is not in this life, but in a life that is yet to come right? So as we bear in mind that trials are not punishment from God for our, fa- our failures, as we bear in mind that trials are not proof that we've used up all the grace that Jesus purchased for us, as we bear in mind that we have a friend in Jesus Christ who sticks close to us even in the midst of dark and difficult days, we should also bear in mind that what awaits us in the life to come is so glorious that it's going to make our darkest days here and now seem like a distant dream. Now, if you're in the midst of a dark day right now, think about the truth of that statement. What's coming for you next is so good that what you're going through right now is gonna be a faint memory, if a memory at all. That's quite a promise. So what should we fixate on? The hope of what's to come, right? Eternal perspective. Um, Now, it stands to reason in this life we will have difficulty. Practically speaking, there are 7 billion people on this planet and we are living in the result of all of us sinning pretty much all the time. Failing to glorify God with our faculties all the time. Right? So, like, how many dogs would have to use your yard as a bathroom before it stopped being a yard? It's really quite remarkable that the earth is as enjoyable as it is for us. Isn't it? Because we're just making a mess of it all the time. Jesus says in John 16, 33, In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So what's your hope? You're not going to have, and I look, I'm not trying to pile on, right? But the phrase, your best life now, I, I understand what what my brother in Christ, Rick Warren, meant by that. The best it can be right now, all right? And I think it's been kind of twisted and taken out of context and used as a stick to beat him with. I also think he's got a bit of a faith prosperity bent, so read with caution, you're not going to have your best life, which is the one to come right now, right? Satan tempted Jesus to have his best life now out in the wilderness. Jesus, surviving that temptation, calls his disciples and tells them, Follow me. And then where does he go? To the cross, to die. And we're called, in a spiritual sense, to the exact same destination. Follow me, says Jesus. And then take up your cross is what he tells us to do, right? So James tells us, count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. And the reason for that is that trials are proof that God is working in you, testing your faith, strengthening it, fortifying it. When it's ouchy and it hurts, your faith is being tested. And if it's being tested by God, it's being enhanced. It's being improved by what's happening to you. The trial exists so that I will decrease, Jesus will increase, and the outcome of that, according to James, is eternal life. So he writes in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God sends the trial to test, to improve, to solidify my faith because without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? So God wants to be pleased with you, so he sends the trial to increase that which he finds most pleasing about you. The more desperate you become for personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the more pleasing an aroma you emit to the Father in heaven. He is thrilled with Jesus So I would suggest if you are also, he's that much more pleased with you. You know what God never does? He sends trials to improve our faith. You know what he never does, ever? Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So trials of faith are distinct from temptations to sin. That's, I mean, this is why we love James, even though it took Luther a while to get there. Luther thought this shouldn't even be in your Bible. He called it the epistle of straw. He repented of that later on. But when you really dig into James, you begin to see how practical it really is. Here's a lesson you can take away if you take nothing else away this morning. There's a difference between a trial, which is a test, and a temptation to sin. One comes from God, the other most certainly does not. We have a tendency, I think, to wrongly conclude that a trial, which is born out of the fact that I sinned, is the exception to all that I've said about trials over the past few weeks. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we sin, a trial results. Mm -hmm. Don't think that God's not working in that trial. Trials are not punitive. Trials are not proof that God wants to punish you. However, some trials are the more natural consequence of our own bad behavior. If you gamble, that could lead to a financial trial, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Sexual immorality can lead to a marital trial or a marital end in some cases. Parental laziness will lead to a family trial. You don't beat them when they're little. (laughs) Just kidding. So there are these times when we find ourselves struggling in a trial, and we know exactly how we got there. From a human perspective, we can see A led to B, led to C, led to D, and now here I am. This is my own fault. Two mistakes I see us making here. First, I see people pretending that the consequences of their sin and stupidity is a test from God. No. Those are consequences of your sin and stupidity. This is happening because you're evil, not because you're righteous. Don't get it twisted. Those who pretend otherwise, right, you've sinned you experience of the consequences, and you go, oh, it's a test from God. You are painting evil with virtue's colors, and you are a short step from saying we should sin more, that grace might abound. Mm-hmm. Second, I see people do the opposite. Because their sin led to the trial, they imagine that God is not working to strengthen their faith in the midst of the trial. Well, look, if God can't work the strengthening of our faith into the consequences of our sin, then we should abandon hope. He most certainly can. However, the temptation which led to the sin did not come from God. So where did it come from? Verse 14. This is a good tempo, right? Good pace? We're doing all right? Okay. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin And you've already all tuned out, but I'll keep reading. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I couldn't just because of the way the software works, I, I could not append just the beginning of verse 19 to the on-screen reading. So I think there's a bit of a 1500s uh, when we're adding the verses and divisions to the scriptures textual issue here. If you look at the beginning of 19, it says, know this, my beloved brothers. That is the end of verse 18. This is the antecedent to everything that Jesus has said. You wanna know when you sin? And then he ends with, know this, my beloved brothers." So it doesn't make any sense for him to say, know this, or you know this, every person, and then give new instruction. It makes sense for him to end his last thought with know this, my beloved brethren. So I'm gonna to try to move quickly. There's a lot of ground to cover. The basic outline works like this, if you're taking notes. What is the cycle of temptation, or how does temptation work? That's first, and we'll have five points, five answers to that question, okay? Second, how do we resist temptation, or what do we need to know in order to resist temptation? And we'll have three points. The question is, are we gonna make it to that second section or not? The answer is I'm not sure, we'll see what happens. So how does temptation work, verse 14? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So five things. And uh, uh, I, as you all know, I am in love with words that end in T-I-O-N. So I've come up with five of them that we can use as headings here. The first thing that happens when we are tempted to sin must be attraction. Now, Robert Murray McShane said in his diary, uh, I find then that the seeds of every sin are in my heart. I struggled with that the first time I heard it decades ago because I was like, mm. there's a couple that I'm like, nope, right? Mm-hmm. But he's right. He's, he is scripturally accurate. But put those aside. Because when you're tempted, it's always something you're attracted to Mm -hmm. that's at work there. So temptation begins when you're attracted to something. We look at Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent, which was more crafty than all of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle, you shall not eat, or dying you will die. <clears throat> the serpent said to the woman, uh-uh, you're not going to die. Uh, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, Genesis 3, verse 6 says, So when the woman saw... This is the beginning of temptation. The serpent draws her gaze toward the fruit. Looking forward to getting into that high school auditorium. (laughs) Bathroom's in the back where they should be. You guys can sneak off in the middle of a sermon. I'll never know. It's too dark out there. the serpent draws her gaze toward the fruit temptation begins Achan in Joshua 7 Israel goes to war they have a great victory he sees a cloak some silver and some gold these things are listed by God as belonging to the treasury of Israel not to be taken for personal gain um set of circumstances arises, he gets confronted. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I took them and hid them in my tent. He sees the cloak, the silver, and the gold. 2 Samuel 11, David is on the rooftop. This one we know very well. He sees. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof A woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. He sees a woman bathing. It may be important to interject here that it is not a sin to find something attractive. This is the beginning of temptation. Sin is four steps down from here. But you see how it begins. It's always something that's enticing to you. The problem is when deception follows attraction. This is two, okay? The instant we begin to think about a thing in terms of its attractiveness, rather than what God has said about it, a deception is taking place. Let me say that another way. Once we exchange what God has said about a thing for what we can observe about it, a deception is taking place. Let me say it one more way. Once we put aside what God has said and begin to be interested in the features of something instead of what God has said, a deception is taking place. You get it? God did not say that the fruit of the tree in the garden was odious or nasty. He said, don't touch it. God did not say that the spoils of war are worthless. God does say to Israel that these things are devoted to the treasury rather than personal enrichment. The fact that Achan and his entire clan dies should serve as something of a warning to our politicians who magically become millionaires when they get to Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gets everybody's attention. It's like red meat to a conservative audience. God does not say that women are gross and diseased and therefore men should stay away from them. He does say, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So attraction then should be reserved for things which are not forbidden to us. <clears throat> Once we are attracted to a thing, we move to step two. We stop thinking about it the way that God has described it, and that leads to step three. So you've got Eve in the garden, having a convo with the snake, and he's like, yo, can't eat any of this? And she's like, no, no, we can eat all this, just that thing. And, and there her gaze goes, that thing we can't eat. Oh, he's, no, you're not going to die, you'll be fine. Come on, let's go look at it. And so she goes closer as she draws closer to the fruit that's on the tree. What happens from a human perspective as you get closer to something? What does it do? It gets larger. Pretty soon it's all you can see. You see more details of it. Eve Previously, I think, indifferent to the forbidden fruit, having had her attention drawn to it by the serpent, moves toward the tree. As she gets closer, the fruit becomes larger. Its features become more obvious to her. Genesis 3.6 says the woman saw the tree was good for food. She hadn't noticed up to that point. It was good enough for her that God had said, uh-uh, no. Oh, and by the way, all the other, like papaya and mangoes and pineapple and all this other stuff, like you... Knock yourself out. But now she's fixated on this thing. Achan, having just achieved victory over the enemies of Israel, notices a cloak from Shinar, silver coins, and a gold bar. He begins to think, what he could get if he had those things. He starts imagining how comfortable the cloak probably is, how financially secure he would be with the silver and the gold. David, at the height of his power in Jerusalem, having spent years running away from tyrannical, crazy Saul, finally comes into kingship over Israel and takes what I think is a well-deserved break from war. So he's up on his roof, on vacation he sees a woman she's beautiful he asks about the woman she's getting bigger she's married he invites her over now she's in the room with him attraction deception preoccupation that's all i can think about now it's all i see I doubt very much anyone gets off the train at this point. Once we've become preoccupied, it's pretty difficult for us to escape. I think the devil probably usually has us. Once we begin to reason contrary to what God has said, we start applying our creative minds to the worst practice. I'm preoccupied with it. Now I'm going to scheme. God put into us as a feature Because we are image bearers, he put into us creativity. And we take that creativity and we apply it towards getting the thing we want that we shouldn't have. An idea is conceived. And this is the fourth step. Conception. Desire conceived gives birth. What is conceived ultimately is the idea that the thing which is forbidden is actually attainable, accessible, acceptable, and even necessary. Transgression is the outcome. Sin is born. We take it. We consume it. Eve eats. She gives some to her husband who's with her, who, by the way, this is my opinion, and I can't prove it, but has been failing this whole time. The problem with that is you would then have to argue that the first sin was that the husband failed to lead his wife. I can't really make a biblical case for that, but I want to. Eve eats. She gives some to her husband. who's with her. Achan gathers the cloak, puts the silver coins in it, the silver bar in it, wraps it up, and conceals it all the way back to his tent. David disregards Uriah, Bathsheba, and God, and drinks his fill. Temptation is won. We have sinned, but it's not over yet. That's only the fourth step. Because then you have subjection. You are dominated, controlled, caught, owned by the sin. One sin leads to another. And we are increasingly more firmly caught in this web. Adam blames God. It's the woman you gave me. Eve blames the devil. The serpent tricked me. Achan watches quietly as Israel is defeated in battle that they definitely should have easily won. Not unlike Nebraska football. You watch in horror while a JV high school team takes you apart. What is going on here? Well, it turns out there was some rot in the heart that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. Scott Frost, who had all these wonderful things to say when he came here, apparently the job was too big for him because now the rumors are he was a drunk and a womanizer. You want to know what's wrong in Nebraska football? Sin. Achan watches Israel get eviscerated. 36 people die who don't need to in a battle they should have easily won. All of Israel's heart melts and he's got to know in the back of his mind. He's got to know this is the judgment of God. He doesn't say anything. It's not until three or four days later When they cast lots, and this tribe is taken, and that tribe is taken, and this family is taken, and this line is taken, and finally the lots get us all the way down to Achan. And Joshua says, come on, man, glorify God. Tell me the truth. What happened? And Achan's like, well, I stole a bunch of stuff. One sin leads to another. David proceeds from lust to adultery to murder And he persists in that for months. What began as attraction ends with us enslaved to something that God warned us to avoid. Our lives are marked by horror, filled with sorrow, and topped off with the sickness of knowing we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Isn't that like the worst part? Man, I can see how I knew better before this thing started. And ignored it. So James answers the question. Are trials different than temptations? This is a test for you. Are trials different than temptations? Okay, there's some head nodding, but that's not the level of confidence I'm looking for. (laughs) Yes. Yes trials are different than temptations temptations come from our own desires trials come from god's desire that your faith would be strengthened attraction leads to deception deception leads to preoccupation preoccupation leads to conception conception leads to subjection to sin oh we're in good shape it's only 10:52 how do we resist temptation verse 16 Do not be deceived. Okay. (laughs) Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Three things. Know this, okay? Know the cycle of temptation. That's one. If you know it, you will be able to identify better when you're in it. There are off-ramps in steps one, two, three, and four. First Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And a thorough reading of your Bible will reveal that to you. I've not done one that wasn't in there somewhere, right? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I mean, I'm sure John Piper has preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that was, an hour and 16 minutes long that goes into every nook and cranny of what that verse means. I'm not here to do that to you this morning. Let me just say this. Have you ever been about to sin and the phone rings Mm -hmm. and you take the call and it should have been a sufficient distraction, but when the call is over, you're like, what was I? Oh, yes. Back to my sin. It could be that simple. God will provide you a way of escape. You won't see it unless you realize the noose is tightening. Knowing the cycle will help you recognize when temptation is happening. Had it occurred to Eve that there was no reason to investigate the fruit, since God had forbidden the whole thing, she could have ended her discussion with the serpent before she ever reached deception or preoccupation. Had it occurred to Achan to carry the banned items to the treasury. He picked him up with one in ten. I'm keeping this stuff. This is mine. And as he's walking and his conscience begins to work, what if he had just gone to the treasury instead? He had off ramps. Had it occurred to David that he was like all set in the wife department. I mean, I don't know how to keep a woman happy. Let alone three and then Ooh, there's one bathing. Let's get, are you kidding me? (laughs) What are you doing? If it had occurred to him that he was all set in the wife department already and didn't need to look around. If it occurs to you that you're being deceived, becoming preoccupied and conceiving ideas to sin, maybe you can jump off the train. This is step one, know the temptation cycle. Are we ready? This is a test for you. First is conception, right? No. No. Okay, good. Attraction. You notice something you like. Step two, deception. You look at it and evaluate it without taking into consideration what God has said about it. Step three, preoccupation. It grows. It becomes paramount. It's bigger in your eyes and in your mind. Step four, conception. Your mind develops a plan to take the forbidden thing and enjoy it. Step five, subjection. You are now owned by it, enslaved to it. It's too late now. Know the cycle. That's one. Two, know the goodness of God. You see what James points us to? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know what God says to David through Nathan the prophet? As he's being confronted. This would have made it so much worse, right? But God's not going to lie and he wants us to learn from David's mistakes. So in 2 Samuel 7, or 12, 7, this is what Nathan says. You are the man. Right? Remember the story? And we've all been there. You get thoroughly indignant over something somebody else has done. And then you're like, eh, I've done that. So Nathan tells David this story. Rich, rich guy steals the only little pet lamb that this poor guy had and eats it right in front of him. And David, uh, that's not really true, but David burns with rage and pronounces judgment against that rich man who did that. And then Nathan says, yeah, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If this were too little, I would add to you much more. I promise, I promise, just from a human perspective, and this may not be helpful or edifying, there was a more attractive woman than Bathsheba out there. Not once David became preoccupied. One of them might have been Abigail. She's sounded kind of hot, right? <laughs> Nabal's wife, she's like, he's an idiot, David, I'm sorry. Like, that's kind of attractive. She's stepping in on behalf of her husband, which is what my wife has to do all the time. That's <laughs> not, how about if we... Eh. That's pretty attractive. He didn't need Bathsheba. And if he thought he did, he needed to only ask God, God, I need to do something with this desire that I have, something that will glorify you, not this thing. So know the goodness of God. If you find yourself preoccupied by something which you know is forbidden, perhaps you should ask God to give you new desires. Perhaps you should lay the thing before God and ask for help to dismiss it. Or perhaps you should ask God to give you a path toward attaining it without sinning. At virtually any point before you sin, you can cry out to God for help, and the giver of gifts will help you. God is not miserly. So, first, know the cycle. Second, know the goodness of God. Third, know the significance of the new birth. Thomas Chalmers has a very difficult to read, but very, really good uh, essay. Um, It's called The Expulsive Power, expulsive, not a word we use, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's Uh, probably online for free. It's very old, very difficult to read. But the significance of a new birth works in these terms. If you could abandon attractions, if you could abandon attractions simply by thinking of the vengeance of God and the wrath of God, Achan would never have taken the cloak If you could resist temptation simply by remembering the wrath of God over sins, David would never have invited Bathsheba over for coffee. Listen carefully. You will never, never simply expel from your heart evil desires. It doesn't work like that. So if you look at Luke 11, we'll prove it really quickly. 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, ah, go back to the house I came from. When it comes back, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. You get the picture? Mm -hmm. And haven't we seen this? You ever have a friend? who's a drug addict, that through grit and self-determination and narcotics anonymous, quits drugs and does not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't know what the percentage is of like addiction recidivism amongst the unconverted, but I would guess it's close to 100%. We knew a guy who was off drugs for at least, I mean, it was at least a decade, right? I sponsored people in AA, gave passionate pleas to guys who were hooked on drugs to get off of them, helped people get off drugs, and then ultimately ended up back on drugs. You can lay the thing down, whatever it is that's you know, got you preoccupied, you can lay it down for a season. But unless you take something else up, it's not going to work. It's never enough to rigorously deny temptation. You want to know why you return again and again and again and again to the thing you're addicted to. You want to know why you keep doing things that you know are evil. You want to know why the devil doesn't have to go beyond one or maybe two lures out of his tackle box to induce you to sin. Because we were designed to be attracted. We were designed to be preoccupied the way we're built. But sin has corrupted that. And so we are preoccupied and attracted to things which are not good for us. We need to be set free from subjection. We need a new affection. This is what the new birth accomplishes. New desires fill our hearts. New life means we don't have to give into temptation. So, know the cycle. Attraction Deception, preoccupation, conception, subjection. Know it. And maybe you'll catch yourself in one of those first four and bail out. Second, know the heart of God. He's good. He's not up there being like, see the Corvette? You can't have it. That's not God's heart. That's not what he does. He doesn't dangle carrots. Uh, 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 uh. Never. He will give you all things richly to enjoy if they're good for you. And he knows what's good for you. And then third, know the power of the new birth. It is not enough to write poison on the things that you're attracted to. You need a new attraction and to be preoccupied with him rather than worldly pleasures. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.